So we'll be in Acts 19 today if you want to turn there, starting in verse 21. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word, for speaking to our hearts, for bringing us out of darkness and into your light. Thank you that you're faithful and true and unfailing. Lord, it's a wonder that you would choose us and you would regard us as you do, as your beloved children, the ones that you, you paid, with, paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. We just rejoice to worship you today, to read your word, and we want to hear your still, small voice speak to us. So quiet our hearts before you, Lord. Prepare us to enter into your presence, and may we worship you as we read your word and consider what you're saying to each one. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. You'd bless the kids as well, that we'd all just draw together in unity and agreement in the love of God and the praise of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this life, we face a lot of difficulties, and God allows these things to try us, to prove us. Not that he doesn't know what's in our heart already, but so we can see. When we're feeling uneasy and worried and overwhelmed, that's a good indication that we need to look to the Lord. We have to trust in him. And I am so grateful the mercies of God are new every morning, and we're never at the mercy of our enemies because God protects us. He puts a a shield around us. He is our fortress, our strong tower. And he is the one who, like in Job's case, Satan sought to destroy him, but God put a boundary on that and a limit of time to the end that he would be doubly blessed. And I'm sure Job did not feel like he was, there was double blessing coming his way when he was really struggling and crying out to God and and uh, having lost family members. I mean, he struggled. It was hard for him. What our enemy means for evil, God uses for good. We see that in the life of Joseph and in others. And while we don't always know the cause of the suffering that we're facing or the reason behind it, we can always know that God is our help in that situation. Wherever you find yourself, God is available and he's It's like he is waiting to respond to our cries for help. I like what David wrote in Psalm 71, verse 19 and 20. He said, Also your righteousness, O God, is very high, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. When God spoke to Job, he didn't blame the devil for the things he suffered. And you go, well, Job, sorry about all that. That was the devil's fault. No. God did it. God allowed it. But God had a purpose in that. And so David, he understood. He said, you've shown me great trouble. You've allowed me to go through some tough stuff, but you'll revive me again. You'll bring me up. You will um, revive me. And that's so great that we have a God who, he's alive. Jesus has risen. He's an awesome God. The final score is already in the book, so to speak. This week, it was Peru that triumphed over Australia in the World Cup. Some people, at least one person in this room, is really happy about that. 
Now, as a Peru supporter, knowing the outcome of the game, would you be really nervous if you DVR'd it and you watched it again? Like, oh, who's going to win? And you're really nervous. You're sweating. Of course not, because it's, it's, the outcome is already determined. It's been decided. And how silly would it be to read an article that Peru had actually lost and to lose that happiness that you get when your team has won? Well, that would be silly because you know the outcome. And it's like that with the Lord. We serve a risen Savior. The score is already in the book. He is victorious. He has conquered death. He has conquered the very things that threaten us. And for us to be worried and and afraid, it's because we've stopped looking to the Lord and we've stopped remembering the things that he's done and what he's promised us. We can persevere because he has overcome. And that's what we'll see today in the life of Paul. Acts 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. This is during Paul's third missionary journey. He remained in Ephesus for years. He taught people in the synagogue. After that, last week we read that he taught in the school of Tyrannus for two years. And through that ministry, the gospel, the people that he spoke to, they carried the gospel throughout the whole region so that everyone had heard of Jesus Christ. He saw people destroy their idols. This great revival within the city where 50,000 silver coins worth of books were burned publicly and people were mightily turned to the Lord in that city. It says, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. So on the heels of all this, what's happened, Paul purposes in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. If you're to read this in the King James or the NIV, it's not clear if this is the spirit leading him or if it's just something he decided to do. I think the NIV says he decided. And in the um, New King James, it's capital S spirit. In the King James, it's lowercase s because it doesn't capitalize everything. Now, it's reasonable that Paul was led by the Spirit. This shows me that we can't always discern the motives of other people and the choices that they make. But we should always check our motives to see that we are being led by the Holy Spirit, not just doing something that, um, that only I want to do. Just because I want to do something or go somewhere or be used by God in a particular way does not mean necessarily that it's his will for my life, right? Because I can get things wrong. There's tons of examples in Scripture of people who believed God, they trusted God. That, that part was not questioned. But they were mistaken about the way that God would do something. Moses is a perfect example. He knew it had been revealed to him that he was going to be the one God would use to deliver the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt. He sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. Acts 7.25 says he supposed the Hebrews would have understood God's call upon his life when he stood up for the Hebrew and he beat the Egyptian to death. Okay, so he killed the Egyptian. And he's thinking, this is going to be the way that people will know that I'm the one. Well, that wasn't the way. He fled. 40 years later, after he's been prepared, he comes back, 
And God sends ten plagues to prove himself superior over all the gods of Egypt and to make his name great throughout the world. So it wasn't about Moses. But Moses had this idea that this was going to be, oh, great, this is an opportunity to show my loyalty, that I'm the guy. And that wasn't the way. But he was still God's man. Naaman, he went to Samaria, believing he would be healed from his leprosy. And he had this idea, like, well, how is he going to do it? He's going to come out. He's going to wave his hand over the spot. He's going to say some words, and I'll be healed. Well, that's not what happened. Elisha, he didn't even come to the door. He had come all the way with a big caravan of people, and he's expecting great pomp and to be greeted at least at least greeted by the prophet. And he just says, hey, go dip seven times in the Jordan. You'll be healed. And he was furious. He was angry. And he was going to leave and go back to Assyria without uh, healing. But his servant said, hey, if he'd asked you something really hard, wouldn't you have done it? But it's just a little thing. Just do it. He's like, ah, fine. And he was healed when he obeyed. How about the response of Peter when Jesus gave him divine revelation? Mark 8, verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's a good thing that Jesus didn't listen to Peter because he would have, he would have lost his own self. He would have had no salvation because Jesus had to suffer. He had to die so he could rise from the dead and defeat sin and death and give this victory to all people. Born again and spirit-filled believers are not infallible. We have to seek the Lord, submit to his counsel, his wisdom, and there's, he gives us wisdom in his word and he gives us counsel from other believers that we can take to heart. Paul, he endeavors to go to Jerusalem. He wants to see the gospel brought to Rome. And he begins to implement his plan by sending Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he remained in Ephesus. And that's when something crazy happened in verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Around this time, there was a great commotion, a disturbance about the way. I like that, the gospel, the way of salvation, the way to know God. There was this man named Demetrius. He was a craftsman. He made these silver shrines. They'd make little trinkets and stuff to sell and give the worshipers who traveled from the whole region to worship uh, Diana or Artemis. In mythology, she was the daughter of Zeus. She was the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, and fertility. And Ephesus was well known throughout the whole world for having this amazing temple to Diana. To describe it, 
it says the foundation was rectangular. It measured 46 meters in width, 91 meters in length. It had 13 steps leading up to the terrace, 127 columns. A lot of these had relief on them. It wasn't just a fluted column. They were all carved 20 meters high with icon capitals and carved circular sides, and it was made entirely out of marble. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was very famous, world famous. It put Ephesus on the map as being important. Today, so little remains, it's not even really worthy to be called a ruin. It's like a pillar and a few stones here and there. But it was a grand thing. You think of a, a, a rugby field about that size and 20 meters high. It was quite an impressive structure. And this worship of Diana, this hub of, of worship, it provided a really lucrative source of income for these craftsmen. And Demetrius connected the preaching of Paul with a steep decline in money. Like we've seen this all over the world that wherever this Paul goes and he preaches, it it puts the pinch on the, the workers, not making the money that we should. This economic downturn came through the gospel being preached. Do you realize the impact that the gospel alone can have on a person, upon a city, upon a nation, even the world, even Australians. We want to think that we're, you know, maybe impervious to this gospel, but no, the gospel transforms people. It changes people. It changes their habits. It changes the things they love and worship. By itself, Education, programs, welfare, support groups, they don't have power to change people. Only Jesus does. And my intention is not to trample on those who do much good in the world, who seek to serve and to help people, to make a difference in the lives of others. And I'm not suggesting that we just say, be warmed and filled when there's something we can practically do to help. But this shows us that there's nothing more practical than the gospel. It's the deepest need that people have to be born again and to come into relationship with God. Because that will affect everything. We can view a lot of other things as more important than the gospel, more pressing, right? Like, well, this is a bad situation. We need to intervene, change the circumstance, then give the gospel. Well, the gospel, that's what changes people and therefore will change circumstances. And even when circumstances don't change, it changes that person. It gives people the ability to beat alcoholism. They won't be comfortable in sexual sin. Domestic violence and drug abuse, that's going to start fading out of the picture when people come to Christ and they're transformed. And we see that here. He's like, people are getting the gospel and they're not buying our shrines anymore. This is a problem. It was impacting. I mean, Jesus supplies what we need. He reaches inside people, and he changes them. The people who are blind, he restores to sight. He delivers, and he saves. And believers can accomplish individually what programs cannot, with all the resources of the world, God is able to do. People without hope, without direction or purpose, they discover that and much more in Christ.
Demetrius, he warned the craftsmen. He says, Paul, he's teaching that these, these idols we're making, they're not gods. It threatens not only our industry, but it denigrates Diana and her temple, the thing that's put us on the map. And if that goes, what sort of business will we have? That famous landmark was part of their identity. I think of when I watch sport, international sport especially, whether it's rugby or cricket or World Cup, you guys see those Aussies out there. They're going to be wearing green and gold, and somebody is going to have one of those inflatable kangaroos. Those things, I don't even know where you get them, but they're everywhere. It's something iconic. It's something that we, we realize this is unique to us. And whether you uh, are a real nature lover or not, it's associated with us, and it's important. It's valued. And that's kind of what this temple was for them, even more so because their livelihood depended on it. It wasn't just civic pride. It was their money as well. And so when that's threatened, they're like, okay, we got to do something. And they start chanting, you know, great is Diana of the Ephesians. See that? It says, whom all Asia and the world worship. This is what gives us a place in the world. And if that goes, who are we? What do we have? They became angry. They started shouting. We're, we're pretty laid back in Oz, I think. There's things that we are willing to shout for, though. I remember being at Town Hall, and they were having some sort of uh, rally. They had a megaphone and somebody up front and trying to get people to chant something, and most people couldn't be bothered. They're like, oh, okay. But there were a few people that were really into it. And I started thinking, well, what's something that I would actually shout over that I'd care enough to lift my voice to be heard because it's important? And that, that got me thinking about a lot of things. Am I willing to raise my voice to shout to my Savior, my King? What's happening in Ephesus had the makings of a riot, as we'll see. Verse 29, So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This theater was not a cinema. It was kind of cool when I actually figured out what a theater would be. Um, there is a difference between a theater and an amphitheater. I have some examples to show of theaters that I've been to. An amphitheater is like the Colosseum. It has seating all around the stage area, whereas a theater, it only has seating on one side. And it's an outdoor theater. So this was outside. Do we have those pictures that we could show? There you go. So some, I know in this room, have been there. This is in Caesarea. So this is a theater in Caesarea, the place where uh, Herod was being honored. And they said, it's the voice of a god, not of a man, where he was struck with worms and died. This is the spot. Next one. 
Anybody know where that is? That is Betshan, correct. So uh, Betshan, you have this upper area that's fallen. You don't see seeding here because the earthquake leveled it, but there's some of it that still remains. You can see the tail off in the distance. That was the fortified area. Next. Now this is Ephesus. Pretty big. Massive. I think these pictures were taken just five, five or so years ago. Next one. So it's a pretty large area. You can see the street and the final shot. Wow. Pretty impressive. Quite a structure. Thanks for that. So the whole city is thrown into an uproar. A big city, a lot of people. They grab Gaius and Aristarchus and they rush into the theater. They're in this open area. Paul's response is immediately to go in and rescue his friends, to make a stand against the mob. But it says that his, his fellow disciples and also government officials who were his friends, they said, do not go in there. Don't do it. Matthew Henry said something interesting. He says, Paul was overruled by his friends to obey the law of self-preservation and has taught us to keep out of the way of danger as long as we can without going out of the way of duty. All of us have a survival instinct. It's called the, the fight or flight response. But people that have that flight uh, response, it can be overcome by a sense of duty. Think of a soldier on the brink of battle. They certainly feel fear, anxious, uh, maybe worried about what's going to happen. But because of the vows they've made, because of the duty to country and their fellow soldiers, they will go into battle. They will face the thing they're afraid of because there's that sense of duty that overrides the fear. Paul, his, in, his initial response is to fight it, to, to, to meet it head on. But the people that he was going to engage with were not reasonable. They could not be spoken to. They, they were all confused. They were shouting. The crowd is jostling. It's a mob mentality. People had no idea why they were even there in the first place. And this fellow named Alexander was drawn from the multitude, being a Jew, and the Jews, it said, urged him to speak. It's possible this Alexander is the one that Paul spoke of in 2 Timothy 4.14, who did him much harm. It's likely that Alexander was not making a defense of Paul or the gospel, but to defend the Jewish position of monotheism, because it was the Jews were distinct in the ancient world and to this day that they worshiped one God, not many gods. And so he was making his defense to say, hey, um, and, and I, being Jews, Paul was a Jew, but the unbelieving Jews did not want to be lumped in with the Christians. So they were making a distinction between, hey, we're not these guys. Don't come down hard on us. Being a coppersmith, he was part of their trade. And... Uh, but when they found out he was a Jew, they didn't even want to listen to him. They just started shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours, this went on. Wow, I can't imagine shouting anything for two hours. But they went. 
Now, one thing is for certain. If you are shouting, you are not listening. You can write that down. That's the fact. If I'm talking, I have a hard time hearing. If you're shouting, your intent is to be heard, not to listen. When you start raising your voice, your ability to hear, it drops down. The crowd wasn't interested in what Alexander had to say. Demetrius and others felt threatened by what Paul had already said. And it's no surprise that this angry bunch gathered together because they don't know the Lord. They're confused. The enemy is the author of confusion. As believers, we're not to unite against the world, world to chant out slogans, to try, you know, to just make our voices be heard like these folks. It's very easy to be an anti-Christian. What I mean by that is we're very loud about the things we're against. And we're against this, and we're against that. And we're anti-this, and we're, we're not afraid to tell you what, what's wrong. But even if we agree something is wrong, let's say you agree with someone, this is wrong. Well, it's a very different thing to decide what is right and how to do it. Right? You can agree with people in the world about this is wrong, but their, their thinking about what's wrong is a different reason for the thing that you think. So may we be those who share the gospel as passionately as we can catch ourselves railing about politi- against politicians or Hollywood or bad strategy in a sports match. I find myself doing that. I'm like, what are they doing? What, this is a terrible strategy. You're never going to win this way. And it's like, who are you, armchair quarterback? What do you know? You don't even play that game, and you think you know everything. Right? So we can be against things, but what are we for? What do we stand for? What will we speak to promote? Do we promote the gospel? Do we promote love and grace and compassion and gentleness? Or are we just against things? If someone starts yelling at you, It's a good time to hold your peace and to listen for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. When Elijah, he stood on the mountain, remember what happened? There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was a fire. God wasn't in the fire. There was this mighty wind that was so strong, it was like ripping the mountain apart. Rocks are falling. God wasn't in that either. These powerful displays. But then he heard the still, small voice. And he drew near to God. He came out of that cave. And he listened and he conversed. You know, even if your screams shake the earth, you can't change people. You can't change what they believe and you can't touch their hearts. Just volume does not make it truer. James 1, 19 and 20. Good instruction for those heated moments. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Getting mad, getting loud, being angry, that doesn't make people righteous. Showing anger to your kids or to your colleagues to get them to straighten up, it may seem to have a positive impact for a short time, but you haven't accomplished anything. They haven't been changed. Only God's able to do that. That outburst did nothing to produce the righteousness of God. And when we have those outbursts, we're certainly not demonstrating it. 
So may the Lord show us when we get a little heated, when we get a little loud, like, hey, hey, are you listening to the Lord now? Or are you just trying to express yourself? Acts 19.35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After two hours of shouting, great as Diana of the Ephesians, the city clerk, he manages to calm everyone down, at least quiet them so he can get a few words in. And he says, everyone knows about the greatness of Diana, the temple that we have here. This is common knowledge. And he mentions an image which was believed to have fallen from Zeus, taken as a sign of favor from the gods. And some have suggested that it was a meteorite that had fallen, that had been set up, and they worshipped it. Um, And reports of this practice are not uncommon in the ancient world, who also worshipped trees and the sun and the moon and rocks and sticks and images made of stone and wood. Other historians, they say there's really not a lot of historical proof that there is a meteorite that they worshipped, but the word diapotes, which denotes sky-fallen, something from heaven, this term is used in situations where they only boasted wood idols. So they say it was a cliche, it was a term of phrase to say something worthy of worship. So it wasn't literally something that fell from the heavens because the, the image that they worshipped was made of wood at this time. But this term was just applied to any object of worship. So whether or not the image actually fell from the sky, we know, number one, it did not come from Zeus. Number two, that Diana nor Zeus are worthy of worship. Being mythological, and there is only one true God. People hold a variety of beliefs today. These people did. They worshipped a variety of gods. They had their household images. They had gods that they would worship when they went to go to a restaurant or to eat. Um, Ones that would give you good luck, would help you. The Bible is the spirit level of truth. And who is worthy of worship? Could you please turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16, starting in verse 23. Great thing written here. By David, when you talk about something that's fallen from the sky, something that fell from heaven. I was really struck by this. 1 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. 
but the Lord made the heavens. God is to be praised. God is to be feared. He's good. He's to be feared above all gods or Elohim in the Hebrew. For all the Elohim of the people are Elil, which is good for nothing. Nothing. Good for nothing. Not even a doorstop. Vain. Vanity. The clerk at Ephesus, he said, that image fell out of the sky from Zeus. But David said, but the Lord made the heavens. He made the heavens that that image fell down from. Even if the image did fall, God made the heavens. He made the elements. He, he made the marble that they carved into pillars. And he caused the trees to grow that they carved into their images and idols. The nations are a drop in the bucket compared to God. And idols are nothing. The power of Satan is like straw to consuming flame. It's nothing. Nothing at all to be feared or to be concerned with. Because God is awesome in everything he does. Everything he has made. He has proved his, his sovereignty over all and is, should be worshipped. He's the one we should shout to. He's the one we ought to praise. The clerk said, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. This is not the way to affect the change you are looking for. Inciting a riot is not the answer. He said, these guys are not guilty of theft. They haven't stolen anything. They haven't even blasphemed your goddess. They weren't preaching against Diana. They didn't spend their time saying why Artemis was not a real god. They didn't have to because they proclaimed the reality of the real god, the risen god, the powerful one who made everything. So instead of preaching against Diana, instead of speaking against the temple, they proclaimed Christ, and people turned from the temple. They turned from their worship to faith in the living God. In the apologetics course on Friday nights, people are being taught about various religions and cults and uh, the deceptions there. That's really valuable. It's good to be able to, to realize where people go wrong and how perhaps to correct them or to speak with them. And, and so having... Knowledge of what they believe is very useful and profitable. But it does no good to preach against them. Right? We should be promoting Christ. We should be living for Christ. It's more profitable to point to Christ in his word than to rail against deception. The positives. Paul did not resort to rabble-rousing to stir up people. He wasn't inciting a rebellion against Diana. He just got people trusting in Jesus. And as people believed in Christ, as they were in the Word and in fellowship with disciples, they too followed him, and their lives were changed. The clerk dismissed the assembly and said, there's no answer we can give for what's happened tonight. <laughs> All the shouting and this uproar. The Romans did not hesitate to respond severely to social disorder. Uh, no rubber bullets, no tasers, tear gas, water cannons, non-lethal forms of punishment. If there was a problem, if there was an insurrection, 
the military just came straight in. I mean, we can have a siege here, and the military is not called. But there, quite different. They would just wipe them away, and they would be an example to anyone else who would try to, to cause a disturbance like that. So, not the way to go. They pretty much treated you as an enemy, and they pretty much trampled all their enemies with iron boots. Acts 20, verse 1. We're just going to go into the next chapter. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. I like that Paul doesn't abandon his disciples in the middle of this uh, outcry, disturbance, as if he's afraid of anything. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to rush into that theater if, if the Lord had prompted him to. And he wasn't trying to escape the trouble to go to Macedonia. But he departed after the uproar had ceased. It had all settled down, and it was the time for him to move on. He doesn't do it at night, right? He's not escaping through a basket let down at night trying to escape from his enemies. He calls a meeting where all the disciples come. He embraces them, and he departs. He doesn't encourage anyone to leave with him. Like, oh man, you guys got it rough here. You know, Demetrius and Alexander and the temple, and wow, it's so idolatrous. You got to get out of here. He doesn't say that. He, he is being led by the Lord and where he goes and what he does, and he embraced them and he left them there. And they were in good hands because the Lord had them. The Lord would protect them. He would provide for them. Let's turn to what he would later write them in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, when he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. Perhaps some of those that he embraced, they also read this letter that he gave to them. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Toward the conclusion of the letter. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day in having done all to stand. When Demetrius and the mob raged against the followers of Christ, it would have been very easy to see them as the enemy, right? Those guys are against Jesus. They're, those guys are against me. And it, you could be afraid of them. It would be very normal. But their battle as Christians was not against the silver guild or the craftsmen, but their battle was taking place in the spiritual realm against spiritual enemies. And the temptation that we face is to wrestle against people, to oppose people, rather than be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, looking to him. The only way this battle could be fought and won is through trust in Jesus Christ, relying upon him. God has not left us alone or without help because he's given us the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter who helps us in our infirmities. And Paul uses Roman armor as an analogy to show it was multifaceted. It offered protection against all the attacks of Satan. 
A lot of these attacks come by the way of lies and temptations, thoughts that oppose Jesus, arguments that go against the scripture that we can take to heart and trust rather than, so we can be in doubt rather than faith. We're commanded to be strong in the Lord and to stand in the evil day, and that's something we're able to do by the grace of God. We're not able to stand on our own, but he's lifted us up. He's the one who helps us. So how can we know if we're putting on the whole armor of God? Well, it's not because you claim each piece specifically, but when you're free from fear, when you have no recourse, when you are overwhelmed, but you have rest. When life is way bigger than you can handle, and in normal circumstances, you would have no hope at all. There's, there's no chance that you can see an end, yet you're able to rest in the Lord and have great comfort and peace. In that moment, then you can know that you're putting on the armor of God because the Holy Spirit's in you and he's equipping you in those times. I learned as a kid the dangers of touching hot griddles. One thing I loved to do, even from a young age, was to, to bake and to cook. I like to, I remember... I was so excited that my neighbor was coming over and I was going to make her pancakes, scrambled eggs and pancakes. And I, you know, seasoned up the scrambled eggs. And I don't know, I was probably like eight or ten. And then, uh, and then I'm putting together the mix, everything from scratch, right? And I get the griddle ready, putting the mix together, and I put in a cup of sugar rather than a tablespoon of sugar. My mother say, she quickly, okay, we're back to that point. Okay, cool. And then kept going. So she was really helpful that day uh, for everyone. Um, but there was a time where the, the griddle had this edge, and I, I put my hand on it. And, ooh, I felt that. And it was blistering up. And, and it was like I burned it, but then it kept burning. and It was not going away. And you have that, you learn at a young age, like, don't do that. Don't touch that. It's hot. It will hurt. But I learned also that if I just put these insulated cloths on my hands, I could touch burning hot objects without fear. So put on those oven mitts, grab those potholders. I could grab a skillet. I could grab a baking tray. I could, I could touch really hot things. And I wasn't like, oh, no, I've got to pick that up. What do I do? It's like, just put this on your hand. It's fine. Like, you don't even have to think about it. And that's like the armor of God. Christ comes into you. He gives you his spirit. The spirit of the living God dwells within you, and he is going to protect you. So we need to trust him and rely upon him. And when we put that on, that faith, that's how we overcome. It's not because you say certain words or you say you believe certain things. It's because he's there. He's in you. He'll help you. The battle was won at the cross. We submit to him in obedience. Paul was able to face that opposition in Macedonia and Ephesus and Jerusalem and on and on. Every place he went because he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he relied upon God. That's how he overcame. That's how he persisted. He kept going. He committed himself to the Lord. He knew he was protected body and soul. And should God allow him to be beaten up, God would raise him up. And God did. Jesus, he faced the pain and the humiliation of the cross without fear because he submitted to the will of the Father. He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid to feel pain. 
He was able to rest in the comfort of the Holy Spirit when he was beaten up and he was betrayed and he was stripped naked and he was pierced. When those nails were driven home, he was resting in the Lord and his Father. Because of the death of Christ, his resurrection, we can be filled with the Spirit of God. We can rejoice in his salvation. We can be washed clean from sin. We don't have to fear the devil or the host of wickedness. We don't have to be afraid if, if the whole world is shouting against us and, and putting us down for what we believe. Because we've been granted victory by the power of God revealed in the resurrection on the basis of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so powerful, so necessary. Before Paul departed, he called the disciples together. He embraced them. When Jesus knew the time of his departure was coming, a very different departure because he was going to Calvary, he gathered his disciples in celebration of the Passover. It was a time to commemorate the the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, how God commanded for them to kill a lamb and to eat it together. And the blood of the lamb for each household was placed on the the doorposts and the lintel, the top piece. So that night, the Spirit of God would pass over and spare their firstborn from the plague, which was the firstborn will surely die. God was going to judge Egypt that night. The people that put the, the blood upon the doorposts and the lintel who ate it in the prescribed manner, they didn't have to fear that their child was going to die that night. No fear whatsoever, because God had promised, and God would save them, as he said. No one needed to fear death. It's just like when you put on that potholder and you grab that hot thing. Don't have to worry about it, because you're protected. God protected his people. And it wasn't just because of the blood that was there. It was because they obeyed his word, and he saved them. He delivered them. Could you please turn to Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. In that same way, when the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to your hearts through faith, we believe the gospel, we trust in his promise, we've repented of our sin, and we say, I claim Jesus as my own. And it's so cool. I I read this the other day. Um, If you've chosen God, if you've chosen Jesus, he's chosen you. You can know that. If you've chosen him, he's chosen you. To be chosen by God. What a blessing. What a privilege that we could be chosen. We are the chosen ones. His special children. Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Part of the Passover was eating and drinking. And at this point, Jesus commands his followers to proclaim his death until he comes by something we call communion or the Lord's Supper, where they ate the bread that was broken, pointing to the living bread, Jesus Christ, and the blood that was shed, the cup, that they were to drink all of them, the new covenant, the new agreement he was going to make so that people could come to Christ and have eternal life. 
to have our sins atoned, to be washed clean. So when we take of the cup and the bread, there's no power in these elements, but they show of the reality of what God has done in our hearts, that we have partaken of the bread of life, the living bread, Jesus, and his blood has washed us clean, and his spirit has come inside of us, and we now overcome as he has overcome. By his grace and the gospel, we can partake of a sweet thing because he tasted a bitter cup. It's a sober occasion, but it's also joyful because we realize the end, right? Jesus is risen, and he's coming back. We get to proclaim his death, his love for us, till he returns. Let's celebrate that victory every day. Let's remember what he has done, and let's thank him. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for filling us with the Holy Spirit and giving us that spiritual armor that we need that protects against those fiery darts um, that the devil would throw at us, those lies and deceptions of the world, even our own frailty, Lord, our own weakness and our failures that are thrown back in our face. Lord, we, we confess we are sinners and we need your forgiveness. We need uh, cleansing. And thank you that you have done that through the blood of Jesus on Calvary. Thank you that you have proved his victory and his, his overcoming grace through the resurrection, that he's alive and he was seen by many. Lord, we rejoice to be called by your name, and we thank you for this passage today and, and what it means to each one. Thank you that you're going to touch our hearts in different ways. Help us to greatly value and treasure Jesus and all he's done, your sacrifice and the new life that you have for each one of us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We glorify. We want to shout your praise. Lord, give us the ability to draw near to you now in faith, trusting you, casting out all fear, putting all worries aside. Lord, may we not be burdened any longer, but that we'd, we'd recognize that we have forgotten you. We haven't taken your power into account, and perhaps we've, we've misinterpreted what you've meant. So, Lord, I pray that we would be as Moses, the one that's called a friend of God. May we be your friends, Lord, because we do the things you've said, because we trust you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for this time to celebrate and to remember your death and all you've accomplished. And may you get the praise and honor forever in Jesus' name. Amen.